Today on Desert Island Torah, we have the zuchut of speaking to Rob Elam Meza, director of Mizrahi Canada. Spending a decade studying at Yeshiva HaKotel and serving in the IDF, Rav Elam then obtained a degree in education and at Smicha. Previously, Rav Elam went on Shlichut to Toronto with his family, where he worked with the B'nai Akiva schools in Mizrahi Canada. Since, Rav Elam has returned to Israel, but he continues his position at Mizrahi Canada. Rav Elam, how are you today? Oh, Hashem. Really great to have you. Really looking forward to learning. So it's Desert Island Torah. Three pieces of Torah that you would bring with you on a desert island. What would they be? What do they mean to you? Why are they so important to you? What is their greatest significance in Jewish existence? Really looking forward to finding out your three pieces today. So if we jump straight in, um, are you ready for your first piece? Okay. So um, I'm going to, uh, just to be um, a little bit, uh, I think, confrontational, um, because just to make it interesting, I guess, but I would say that I love the concept of, of trying to understand people's um, most important Torah to them. And the reason, because Torah is not something that's just a, it's, it's not only some sort of um, objective kind of text that people have to, have to learn and everyone learns it in the same way, but rather every individual has their own chilek and Torah to give and their own chilek and Torah to, that inspires them. And I think that, uh, that's a big part of of trying to understand Torah as a whole is to understand people's Torah, people's Torah, each individual's person's Torah, and that really um, kind of shows how rich and and true Torah is that it inspires so many different people in so many different ways. So I love that concept, but I'll push back a little bit on the on the on the title of it being called the Desert Island Torah. Um, and that's because I don't think Torah is for the desert island in its richest sense. Um, I, I think Torah is supposed to be, and that's why Avram was chosen as opposed to all those who came before him that were, um, that also believed in God, meaning we have, have a whole list in, in, uh, of, uh, in the Torah of people who, who did believe in God. Uh, we have Noah and Adam and, and Hevel and, and Shem, Ever and the Midrashim. And it seems to be that there were those who believed in Hashem beforehand, but Avram was chosen because he was going to create an Am that believed that was going to bring Torah and Derech Hashem to the world. And so Torah, I believe in its richest sense, meaning it's relevant everywhere, in every aspect of your life, in every person, every individual in the world, but it grows as society grows. And it's not only for your own individual your own individual kind of chizuk to keep you strong when you're on a desert island. But the richest sense of Torah is to infuse it in, in society and in civilization and on a global level. And I think that, uh, that Torah at its greatest height, I want to share my pieces of Torah that are dafka not for a desert island, but rather for society at large. Okay. Um, so the first piece that I, I want to share, um, I think that this piece is, is very much speaks to uh, the concept of finding each person's Torah. And it's based upon um, a little bit of a grammatical issue that the Midrash has with Matan Torah. And Matan Torah, everyone knows that it, the, the famous Midrash, the, and it's a Midrash Tanchuma, that it says, Vayichan betachtit ahar, and that we, we, um, that we rested, B'nai Yisrael rested, Vayichan, at the Adhar Sinai, and the Midrash asks, why is it that the word Vayichan is in singular and not in plural? 
this is a famous, everyone knows this, it's brought down in Rashi, everyone knows this piece. It says it in singular, even though there's thousands and hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people at Harsinai, why is it that it's in singular? So, as you know, it's... Exactly. It's because we were like one. And so because we were so united, because we were like one, so therefore that shows that that's the reason why the Torah spoke to, spoke about B'nai Israel in a singular term, as opposed to plural, because we were singular in our heart. The unity, the aftu, to the togetherness, it's so incredible. However, just a few psukim later, after it says, by the bear Hashem, it, uh, by the bear Again, once again, the Sarah Tadipro, the Ten Commandments, are also referred in singular. I am the Lord your God in singular. And the Midrash again asks the same question. And it says, and, and the Midrash asks, why does it say Elokecha and not Elokechem? Why does it say your God in singular and not your God to all of the Jewish people in plural? And you would expect a similar answer. It's a pubes who came later. Why is, why, we know why are things singular and not plural? Because it represents the achdut, the joining of all the different forces of the Jewish people together in a way that creates one entity and we're like one heart. However, the Midrash says the exact opposite. And the Midrash is the most, one of the most powerful Midrashim. It says that, that Har Sinai was like a Okinon, okay? Kind of like, uh, you kind of picture it either like if you're, if you're technologically um, advanced, you picture it kind of like a hologram. That God, um, that Har Sinai experience was like a hologram. Or, um, or maybe the way we can understand is kind of like one of those uh, um, Native, um, Native American um, kind of um, uh, one of the totem poles where there's faces on all sides. And it says that there was a face that was on sides as just as, as the Okinon looks at every individual from wherever you're standing right in the eye, kind of like the Mona Lisa, no matter where you're standing, it's as if they're looking at you, so too, Everyone at Harsinai said, Imi hadibur. In other words, the reason why Anochi Hashem Elokecha is in singular and not in plural is because the Harsinai experience, the giving of the Torah, was done on an individual level and not on a national level. It was, it was every single individual had their own Harsinai experience. It's kind of like the difference between the old planes and the new planes. Unfortunately, I fly a lot. So this is how my, my brain works, always trying to figure out how, uh, how, how, this, how this connects to planes. So, so, uh, so the old planes, they were just like a screen in the front, and everybody would watch that screen. And everybody would watch the same video. You didn't have any choice. Today, everyone gets their own personal screen. You're allowed to choose whatever you want, and you have your own personalized experience. So growing up, I always felt that Harsinai was kind of like this huge experience where everyone stood at the bottom and looked up at Harsinai, and they, everyone saw the same thing happening at Harsinai, the, the uh, kolot and brakim and the, and the arafel and the, and the sound of the shofar. But that's not how it was, says the Midrash. The Midrash says that everyone had their own individualized experience. And so it's fascinating that the same grammatical issue that we find of it being written in singular as opposed to in um, as opposed to in in plural is answered in two completely opposite manners. When we come to the mountain, 
we come as one and we're the most unified and it's if we lose our individuality because of the unity of the people but when we when we listen to our sin and we have the revelation and god speaks to b'nai israel it's done in the most individualized way possible with no connection between the people where everyone has their own own thoughts and their own way of connecting to it and that's why it's written in singular and i think that this balance or not this balance but the synthesis of creating a whole that's made up not of uniformity it's not lots of people learning torah as torah as a singular thing but it's every individual giving their piece to torah that creates the entire torah as a whole so in other words it's kind of torah as a whole there's no one individual ever in history that has a full grasp of torah but rather it's lots and lots it's it's hundreds and hundreds and thousands and millions of people throughout history learning and understanding and being mechadesh and creating new ideas and sharing those ideas that all together creates the puzzle when put together as a whole creates what we call torah and what is really torah torah is the culmination of all of Klal Yisrael's understanding, as opposed to just one individual's. And that's, by the way, when we see 600,000 Jews, the Gemara Mesecha Brachot says we say a special bracha. The bracha is not, hey, that's a lot of Jews. That's not the bracha we make. We make the bracha, Baruch Chacham Harazim, which means, um, blessed is the God who is the, you know, the master of, um, or of all wisdom, or of all secrets. And the Gemara explains, why do we say that? Because just because everybody looks different and everybody's mind is different. And so since everybody's mind is different, when you get everyone together, when you get Kalalisul as a whole together, that's where you have all the secrets of the Torah. Because the our our unity is not based upon everybody doing this, everybody thinking the same, or everybody just seeing things from the same perspective but our unity is strong because it's all the different puzzle pieces linked together in a manner where each one of them is necessary to building the whole thing now i love this piece of torah for two reasons because i think it has two not just on a kind of a theological philosophical level but i think it has two very very practical ways practical um uh, uh consequences or effects on how you see the world uh, number one is that it, it gives it, it gives people a really a sense of responsibility, because if your Torah is a piece of Torah, if you were created different than anyone else in history, and your neshama is different, then your approach to Torah is an approach and a perspective in Torah that nobody else can give, and that piece of the puzzle is missing unless you actually bring it forward. So you have the responsibility to learn and to study and to delve and to and to think and to be creative and to create understandings in Torah based upon true understanding after years and years and years and years of study. Everyone has the responsibility to bring their understanding of Torah to the forefront and to the, and to the table of of the of the global baby drash. And that responsibility is is, I think. It's daunting and it's very, very empowering that you are bringing something to the world of Torah that no one else can. And the second thing is the way that we view other people and the way you view Machlokas. If somebody disagrees with you, there's nothing wrong with having a disagreement and arguing back and forth. But I think that, that if you have a perspective that both of you need to sharpen your pieces 
and try to figure out exactly what your perspective is and their perspective, but together you're creating the puzzle, then the openness to debate and dialogue and, uh, and listening to other people and openness to respecting other people's opinions becomes a, a, um, becomes a mantra and kind of a, a philosophy of how we approach Torah. That it's not that I know my piece is right. It's not the point. I can debate you because I know my piece is important. And therefore, I don't want my voice to be to be muted. But I also know that your piece is important, so your voice shouldn't be muted either. And we can create this dialogue that builds Torah into the into the whole picture. So I'd say that's my number one. Uh, my number one. Wow, really, really important to think about, and it's connected to the midrash in Shemot Rabbah. How when it says how the Torah was received in I think over seventy languages, meaning that it spoke to every single person in a way that it connected to them. And I think that's really unique in that everyone hears the Torah in the way that it connects to them and they find the Torah in a way that connects to them. But then as an individual, they then bring that to the collective, which is Am Yisrael, which was the collective aspect of Har Sinai. I love that. Such an important message. Okay. And so, uh, it's, and it's also the, the number Shivim in general, and the Maral is very big into numbers and what, what numbers mean. It explains that Shivim represents the whole. So that's why we say Shivim Panim Torah, Shivim Lashonot. It's not necessarily means Shivim, but it means the entirety. The Shivim Skenim, the Shivim Yorde Mitzrayim, 70 is the entirety, but it's the entirety that's made up of the pieces. And that's, um, and that's how we see the 70 languages. Okay, Absolutely. great. Are we ready to piece number two? Okay, piece number two. Um, piece number two um, is, is, is based upon, it came to me when I didn't understand a Ramban. There was a Ramban in Parshat Miketz that was extremely hard for me to understand. And once I, um, but I'll go backwards because I'll tell you, I'll, I'll explain how I, got to understand. I'll say what the Ramban says. Okay? The Ramban says as follows. When Yosef came to his, when his brothers came to Yosef, it says that the brothers um, didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. Everyone knows the story. After selling him down to Mitzrayim, he's standing there, and the brothers see, see this king of Egypt, or the second in command, and they bow down to him. And, um, and at that point, the Pasuk says that they didn't recognize him, but Yosef did. And once they bowed down to him, Yosef at the point when he bowed down to them, Yosef remembered the dreams. And in the middle of the Pasuk, it switches gears and it says, Yosef remembered the dreams. And then he accused them of being, of being um, spies. Now, what's the connection between those two? It's very unclear from the Pasuk. Rashi, and this seems to be the, the, the simple reading of the psukim, Rashi says, why did he remember at that point the, um, why did he remember at that point the, the, the dreams? It's simple, because they came true. The brothers bowed down to him, and that's what he dreamed. He dreamed that the brothers would come and bow down to him, and therefore, he remembered the dream because it came true. Okay? The Ramban asks two questions. He says, first, Rashi, I'm not sure if you learned basic arithmetic in school, but do you know how to count? There was only 10 brothers that came to Mitzrayim the first time and bowed down to him. In Yosef's dream, there were 11. What? So, so, so the Rabbana, so Rashi, do you know how to count? There were, only, there were only 10 brothers 
that were that bowed down. And in the dream, there were 11. Binyamin wasn't with them at the time. So how can you say that the dream came true? And also, what does this have anything to do with accusing them of, um, of, uh, of, of being spies? Meaning if the dream came true, why are you accusing them of being spies? So the Ramban creates this whole understanding of the story from the following perspective. He says, specifically, remember the dreams because they didn't come true. The bowing down reminded him of the dream and made him realize that the dream was not yet true. And so therefore, Yosef needed to make it come true. Yosef needed to concoct this whole story of them being spies and accusing them and sending them back to find their brother, to bring Binyamin, so that all the brothers were there in order to make the dreams come true. And I looked at this Ramban, what in the world is going on? On one hand, on one hand, if the dreams are supposed to come true, then why did Yosef have to make them come true? And on the other end, if they're not supposed to come true, then why would it matter whether or not he concocted this whole scenario? If the dreams are like a nevuah, they're like a prophecy, then they should be coming true. That was my question. I couldn't understand it. And then I started to look at the dreams. And it's something fascinating. I don't know if, if you noticed this before, but there's something, there's a fascinating progression of how Yosef understands dreams throughout the story. Okay? The first time Yosef has a dream, and the dream was famously that he has the um, he has the stars and the moon that bow down to him, or uh, or the alumot, the uh, the sheaves of wheat that bow down to him. And Yosef, when he, he has this dream, and what does he do with it? He tells it over. He just tells the dream over. He just says, "This is what I dreamt." End of story. The second time Yosef meets dreams is when he's, in the, when, he's in the, when he's in the pit, in the, in the jail. And he has the dreams of the Saramashkim and Sarofim. And the Saramashkim and Sarofim tell him the dream. But this time, Yosef does something a little bit more advanced. He doesn't just look at the dreams as a dream, but rather he finds an interpretation to the dream. He interprets them. He starts off, right? At first, he was just telling over the dream. There was no interpretation the first time. The second time, there's telling over the dream and an interpretation. And then it happens, the Saramashkim goes back and the Saraofim is killed. The third time Yosef meets dreams is with Paro. And he hears Paro's two dreams. Again, the dreams are told. This time again, he interprets the dreams and says what's going to happen. But he does something that seems like a progression from his previous encounter. He doesn't just tell over the dream and he doesn't just interpret it, but he also reacts to it. And he tries to figure out how to best utilize the dream or react to the dream in the new scenario. And so he says, power, you have to get ready. There's going to be seven years of famine and seven years of good years. And so there are seven years of good years and seven years of famine that follow. So you have to plan ahead and you have to create all these plans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he's not just interpreting, but he's trying to manipulate reality based upon the dreams in order to best prepare themselves. That's step three. Step four is the Ramban. Not just does he, when he sees, when he re-encounters his old dreams, he's now taking it to step four. It's not just a telling over of the dream. It's not just an interpretation. It's not just a, a, um, a reaction to the dream, but he's being proactive about creating the dream into reality and manifesting that dream. And that's the fourth step in his relationship to dreams. 
It goes from just telling it over as if I, I don't understand it, then interpreting, he has more of a relationship with it, he takes more of an active role, then he's reactive, even more of an active role, and then the most active he can be, he actually tries to manifest the dreams into reality. And that's what the Ramban is telling us is the fourth level of that progression. Now what's even cooler is the following thing. You would expect that this is, this seems to be the question of hishtadlut versus bitochon. That there's, there seems to always be a balance of how much should I mishtadel and how much should I trust and faith in God? How much should I, should I do on my own and how much should I have faith? And we always talk about balancing hishtadlut and bitochon. However, if you look closely at the psukim, you'll find that when Yosef is the least active, when he's just telling over the dream, the, word, the name of Hashem doesn't appear at all. There's no name of Hashem. God's not there. The second time when he's interpreting the dream, God is, appears once. When he's reacting to the dream, then at Paro's palace, almost every second word is Hashem, is Elohim, 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 Elohim. God is so present. And then in the third, in the fourth time, once Yosef is the one activating the dreams, you see that Yosef sees all of history and all of the reality and all the events that transpired as being something that God caused. As that's what he answers the brother when he said, we're so sorry that we did this to you. He says, no, everything's made to Hashem. This is all made to Hashem. Everything that's happened, it's all in order to save, to save us and bring them to Israel and to sustain the Jewish people. And so what we see is that that he has a counterintuitive reaction to Ishtal and Bitachon. You would expect that the more that you're active within bringing about God's Ratzon, the less faith you have. But it's the opposite with Yosef. Faith is directly connected to the amount of Ishtal that he puts into it. And there's even a Midrash in, 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 uh, in Echa Rabbah that says there were four kings of... Um, of Yehuda, there were good kings. There was Asa, Chizkiyahu, Yoshiyahu, and 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 David, and each and each one of them, there was a progression downwards in terms of how much how much faith they had. The more faith they had, like David, who had the most faith, he was the most active. But the ones who have the least faith, we coming down to Asa, who just davens to Hashem. And, doesn't, and waits for Hashem to kill. And Chizkiyahu says, I don't have any koach, I'm just going to lie in my bed, and God, you'll take care of my enemies, and you'll do it for me. That was seen as the lowest level of faith. But it seems, it still is counterintuitive. Why is it that the more faith you have, the least amount of, the more ishtalu you should have? Shouldn't it be the opposite? If you believe that God is in charge, you should just lay back and say, God, take care of things. So Rav Kook explains that there's, in, in Ein Ayan, on Masech Shabbat, he explained that there's three levels of faith. And this, I think, gives us a really good understanding of this Ramban and everything clicks. The three levels of faith, the lowest level of faith thinks that you're in charge, you can do whatever you want. That's the lowest level of faith. That's no faith. The second level of faith is a belief in God as an external, um, external power that, that acts upon you, that controls your life, that gives you things or takes away things. That external faith means that when where do you see God? You see God only in the events that transpire to you, whether or not you're a big success or a big failure, or you see it as a punishment or as a reward, as miracles or as lack thereof. And you see God only as happening to you. The third level of faith is where you're entwined with God and you see yourself 
as every aspect of your being, also your hishtadut, also your actions, are a manifestation of God's will. And you see that partnering with Hashem in carrying out His will in the world is the greatest sense of faith that you can possibly have. And I think that this is, 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 is the same kind of um, uh, um, switch that Esther made before she saved the Jewish people. That when Mordechai came to Esther and told her, and, and it, it's fascinating because it's, it, Mordechai, I think, gives the worst pep speech or like, you know, pump-up speech ever in history. Esther, the Jewish people are about to be killed, and Esther is standing there, and Mordechai wants to convince her to go and risk her life to save the Jewish people. And he tells her, if you don't do it, somebody else will. But maybe for this reason, you're in this place. Now, usually when you want to pump somebody up, you'll say, if you don't do this, no one will, meaning we need you. That's not what he said. If you don't do it, someone else will. You'll be able, someone else will do it. How does that help anything? So she won't do it. But this really pumps her up. I think she makes this, under, she gets, she, it clicks in this understanding that we're, that, 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 that we're proposing. I think she, that, that's what motivated her, where she realized that the reason why she's here in the world is not because God needs her to, in order to carry out his will. Meaning, it's, 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 God can find Rebach Vatsala from somewhere else. If God wanted this just to happen, he'd just be able to do it. But God wants us to be part of his will, wants us to bring about his Ratzon into the world. And so therefore, when she says, maybe you're in this place, because of you, you need to, you, for your life, for your sense of meaning, for your purpose in this world, you need to bring about Hatzalah to the, to the Jewish people. Hashem doesn't need you. And that sense of faith is a sense of faith where you believe, as the Ramban said, nevuah and dreams are not things that happen to you, but they're calls to action of things that God wants in this world to occur. And the question is, are you going to be a part of it, or are you going to stand on the sidelines? And Yosef's decision was, I don't want to stand on the sidelines for Hashem's will in this world. I want to be part of those nevuahs. And when we look at nevuah as a whole, we always have to ask ourselves the question. When the, when the Navi says that there's going to be kibbutz galiot, the question is, am I going to watch this from the sidelines as a passive player, or I'm going to be part of Hashem's will and try to be a part of manifesting it? That doesn't mean that Hashem necessarily, if we don't do it, no one else will or that Hashem won't find other kelim, but it's a question about how your faith in God is. Do you sell its active faith versus passive faith? And that's, I think, the message the Ramban gives of how to see nevuah. Nevuah is an active thing and not just a passive one. Wow, I love that. I love that. So important. And the story of Yosef is like my favorite. So when I just love that in Perak Lamed Zion, it's like no mention of God's name. Perak Lamatet, like God's name is mentioned so many times that it just shows like one, like God controls the story with all the like the setup with the dreams and everything, but also how Yosef manages to like use Hashem and the dreams is quite unique. And the connection to Megillah Esther again, there are so many interesting connections with the story right. of Yosef and Megillah Esther, especially They're definitely with, right. With the control like God controlling the story, God's name not mentioned. Um, and that's a really, really important message. So are we ready for piece number three? Yes, we are. So in Itzavit, so I think that the, to, to end things off, it's, it's, a little bit of, um, it's a little bit of nine days Torah, 
as well as the last, one of the last pieces of Torah in, in Chumash as a whole. So I think that the Torah, Chumash, ends in the most anticlimactic manner possible. It is the worst ending, and I'm saying this only as an introduction, but it's the worst ending possible of any story, of any book ever in history. And it's, it's actually shocking. Okay? The story of, from Breshit onwards, I think that just to go over the entire Torah in, in two sentences, Breshit and Noah give us the reason why we need a Torah as the world falls apart. Lech Lecha, all the way to end of Breshit, creates the family structure that is meant to build the Jewish people and the values of the Jewish people in order to fix the world. And then Shmot, we become a nation. We receive the Torah at the end of Shmot, and we receive our mission as the Jewish people and all of our rules and all of our laws throughout Sefer Vayikra. And we are chosen as the Amma Kadosh, and we have this most incredible mission we're supposed to go into Eretz Yisrael, but Midbar, there's ups and downs and failures and successes. And then in Dvarim, we reconnect with our covenant with God in order to enter in the land. And it seems like the Torah is building this up. We're the chosen people. We're going to enter the land. We're going to represent God in this world. We're going to fix all of the mistakes of humankind. It's so exciting. Now it's clear at the end, right at the end of Tvarim, it tells us that if we follow the mitzvos, great. If we don't follow the mitzvos, we'll be punished. And that makes sense. In order for us to reach our potential, we need to follow the mitzvos. And I get that. That makes a lot of sense. We're told if you follow the mitzvos, you'll do great. And you'll become the great nation that you're meant to be. If you don't, everything's going to fall apart. But then there's another chapter. And it's as if God turns to Moshe, they're out of the room, and he tells Moshe, by the way, they're all going to fail. They're going to fail. And literally he says that. He says, Moshe, you should know that when you die, they're going to go into Eretz Yisrael and they're going to fail. And I know they're going to fail. And everything's going to, everything that I said in the bad part of the, of the, of the Tochecha, it's going to transpire. A hundred percent. And you're like, what? I mean, I understand if there's an option for failure, but you're setting us up to succeed. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. But why would a Kodesh Baruch Hu, at the end of the Torah, tell us that we're going to fail? And he actually, then Moshe tells B'nai Israel this, this message, you're going to fail, and all of Shirat HaZinu is the song that we should sing to ourselves when we fail. It's like the Torah, at the end of the Torah, that's why I say it's the worst ending, because you would expect all this pump up to create the Jewish people. You would expect the Jewish people to be told, okay, now go and take this and change the world. What we're told is, okay, we're giving you this most incredible Torah, all of these rules, but you're going to mess up. And I'm sorry. It's a crazy concept. So I think... It's a similar message. It's a similar um, kind of kind of shocking mindset as a story at the destruction of the Bayit Sheni. The destruction of Bayit Sheni. The Gemara tells us that Nero Kesar came to Yerushalayim to destroy the Beit Hamikdash, and beforehand he wanted to check whether or not God was on his side. So he took an arrow and shot and shot towards Yerushalayim. The arrow landed in Yerushalayim. Then he turned around. And he shot backwards, and the arrow turned in the air and landed in Yerushalayim miraculously. He shot to the side and landed in Yerushalayim. Sat to the other side and landed in Yerushalayim. In all directions, landed in Yerushalayim. And he says, clearly, God wants me to destroy Yerushalayim. This is clear. God is on my side to destroy Yerushalayim. Then, as he's walking towards Yerushalayim, he sees a little kid coming back from Cheder. And he asks the kid, 
Tell me your apostle. Tell me what you learned today. And he tells him that he learned an apostle that God will help destroy the temple, but he will clean the hands or take revenge on whoever did it. So he realizes, so Nero realizes that God is going to be on his side to destroy the temple, but then he'll, there'll be retribution afterwards. So what does Nero do? Now, what you would expect Nero to do if he takes all the information in hand would be run away and go to, a, you know, go to Fiji, lie on the beach and do your own thing. Stay away from this whole story. The Gemara tells us that Nero converts to Judaism and his great-great-great-grandchildren are Rebbe Meir. Is Rebbe Meir. That's what the Gemara says. Now, converting to Judaism, I understand, if you're on, in, in certain times in history. But he knows that the temple is being destroyed in, 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 a, in, in a few days. This is the worst time to invest your life in Judaism. This is the worst possible moment in history to convert. So why would Nero think to convert? I would understand if he just didn't destroy the temple, because there'll be retribution, but he also knows that God wants to destroy the temple. What, what about this scenario motivated Nero to convert? And I think that it's the same message at the end of the Torah, which is that what shocked Nero was that our relationship with God is not only a manifestation of goodwill and good times, but our relationship with God is the same, it is just as divine for the good things that happen to us and the bad things that happen to us. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in both of those places equally and takes care of us. And when you say take care, it doesn't just mean good, but He is involved in both parts of life, the good and the bad. And so Nero was shocked by this. That relationship with God is not an external thing where we just worship God in order to get goodness, and when things are bad, we'll choose another one. But rather, a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu is eternal and all-encompassing and includes both the good and the bad. And therefore, he said, that's the type of relationship that I want to be a part of, even during the bad. And that's the relationship where God tells us at the end of the Torah, He says, I know that things are going to go bad. But that doesn't mean that our relationship is broken. Even when our relationship seems to be difficult and things are not going in, 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 are not in the best of light and not going the best, it still is me. What the end of the Torah is showing us is the fact that our relationship with the Kaddish is not dependent only on us succeeding and doing the mitzvahs. But our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu is eternal. And even though a Kaddish Baruch Hu knows that we're not always going to succeed, and we're also definitely going to fail, and that's what he tells Moshe, we're definitely going to mess up, the relationship is still there. He still gives us the Torah even though it's going to be challenging for us. And I think that this is a powerful message and whenever we find ourselves in difficult times, that a Kodesh Baruch Hu has not forsaken us. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a lie to believe that God forsakes you when you are not feeling the good times or when things are difficult. God is just as with you during those difficult times. And during difficult times as a people, God is still with us. But also on an individual level, I think that it's a very powerful message that even when we mess up, the Torah was not only given to those who constantly succeed and only, and only are tzaddikim. But it's also given for people who mess up and aren't able to succeed and are, and, or are not yet able to succeed and not yet fully tzaddikim. It's given for people who are chota as well. The Torah was given for sinners. And that 
that mindset of even when I'm not in the best of place, I'm not proud of my actions, I still have a relationship to a Kodesh Baruch when I still have a relationship to the Torah. The Torah was not, is not forsaken me. You can always return. You can always step back up. You can always push yourself. And I think that the Rebbe Mluvavich had a powerful line. When someone asked him, why is it that after Yeshiva and Midrashah, so often students go off the derech when they come back after, after they go to yeshiva or seminary. And the answer that he gave was because they lowered their standards. When somebody does something wrong, they have two options. Either say, that was wrong, I got to do better. Or they say, okay, I'm no longer yeshiva bacher. I'm no longer, uh, I'm no longer in, 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 I'm no longer in yeshiva in Israel. I'm no longer, it's not shaykh. I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm a university student. Or now I'm, you know, I'm just, a, I'm just, you know, I'm a businessman. I can't, it's, it's not me anymore. When you say it's not me anymore, that's when things start to go downhill. But if even if you're failing at certain aspects of Torah mitzvot, if you say, I'm still the same person that Akush Baruch gave the Torah to, and Hashem wants to give me the Torah, even when I'm failing, that's when you're able to have a real relationship with Akush Baruch So important and such a nice ending message, especially in the context of like going to Yeshiva, Midrashah, when you come back, it's so important to take what you gained with you and bring it with you. Um, and as it says, like, bring, make, you know, God part of everything you do. Um, whether you're in Midrash Yeshiva, in Chutz Aretz, even if you're in Israel doing something different, not sitting learning Torah every day, but doing something completely different, it's always important to think um, about that and make it an important part of your life. Amazing. So thank you so much for joining us today and thank you for learning with us. It's been a real zuchut. Thank you so much. This is a great project. I love it. And thank you again. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisrael. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.